welcoming Catherine Courtney to uh, the Future Visual podcast, which is Building New Realities. So super d delighted to welcome my esteemed guest, uh, esteemed neighbour, uh, Catherine, who has had a super interesting career to date. And uh, we've done a little bit of work with at Future Visual and she's been wonderful to be involved with. So just to give you a bit of background, Catherine was uh, Chief Exec of UK Space Agency. She was the Director of the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and founder of Primary Space and Space South, as well as the Global Network on Sustainability in Space. So obviously has a huge interest and knowledge in space and also has a passion for uh, helping startups, as I mentioned She's been kind enough to spend time with us at Future Visual, and she's been really, really helpful in um, uh, helping us understand what the space sector looks like, and really just giving us lots of her time, which has been incredibly valuable and helpful, and uh, we look forward to that input coming to fruition. So, Catherine, where did your, first, where did your sort of passion for helping startups and uh, smaller companies come from? Oh, well, um, first of all, Tim, thanks for uh, inviting me to participate in this. Um, I suppose I've, I've always had a passion for that, um, possibly uh, because going back to my mother, who was a small businesswoman herself, um, and although for many years she tried to persuade me to uh, take over the business from her, um, she was in real estate that wasn't really my cup of tea. Uh, I think I just very quickly when I started my corporate career in global telecoms found that um, the, the corporate world wasn't quite cut out for me. I um, enjoyed developing new things, new ventures, new products, and, um, and had previously to, uh, I guess, starting my corporate career, I'd been self-employed, started a few of my own businesses. Uh, now that I'm mulled over, probably... My sister and I started a house cleaning business when I was about 12. So, so maybe it started from there. I've always enjoyed doing new things. And from that experience, um, I worked with a succession of tech startups um, myself after I uh, left corporate life and, um, and just really enjoyed that journey. It was a roller coaster ride, but. Uh, I learned so much and, you know, as you yourself know, as a company founder, you have to be a jack of all trades um, and you get to solve all the big problems yourself, you know, and uh, pull the team together to, to work with you. So I suppose I've always had a passion for that, even though my career um, has taken different twists and turns. So I haven't always been in startups, but I've always been engaged with startups. Okay, so entrepreneurial from a young age then, starting your cleaning business. And then did you go into uh, sciences or into arts or into business? Where did you sort of go from um, sort of, you know, senior school, university? Yeah, I've done a lot of reflecting on that, actually, when I was, um, when I started my STEM engagement charity, because I stopped to ask myself, you know, why didn't I? Uh, go into sciences or engineering and those sorts of studies because actually those were passions of mine as a child. You know, I, I was obsessed with taking things apart and putting them back together and understanding how um, mechanical things worked, etc. But it wasn't my background. So I um, went through a standard liberal arts education, you know, route. Um, I, my undergraduate 
graduate studies were in modern languages and cultural anthropology. Uh, and then I went and was self-employed in Spain for several years. And after that, I decided that if I wanted to get a real job, I would need um, a master's degree. So I did my MBA. And that was the journey that led me into, into telecommunications um, initially. And from telecoms, that presumably it was, a, was it a natural fit into space or did you find yourself going um, into uh, <laughs> public service after that? So um, from telecoms, I suppose I then, uh, I talk quite openly about my midlife crisis, you know, when I woke up one day after um, seven years in successive international startups and realized that that um, lifestyle had taken a toll on my marriage and my health. Um, and as exciting as it had been, I decided that it was time for a pivot and a career change. And so I took the expertise that I gained in developing new technological solutions from that private sector environment and um, basically saw an ad in the Sunday Times and applied for a job and became a senior civil servant. Um, so I, you know, I then had 15 years and very nearly 15 years of uh, roles uh, in Whitehall, where I led on UK government policy uh, for fairly major digital um, transformation programs for the UK government. Um, and my last two roles in government were uh, as enterprise policy director, which is a strange title, but basically meant small business growth and entrepreneurship policy. Um, and then from that, I was appointed to lead the space agency. Um, that's the way things work in the civil service. It's not necessarily uh, that you've followed a, a clear career path um, into space. Uh, but I have to say that once I was there and um, leading the agency during such an interesting time uh, for the UK space sector, uh, we had Tim Peake um in his mission to the international space station we had um the referendum outcome uh and for the uk space sector the relationship with europe uh is very very big and important um, international partnership and so all of these big issues were happening during my tenure there um i i learned an enormous amount and was able to start some really exciting new programs for the uk so bitten by the space bug when i left government um, i have stayed involved in space primarily it's not the only thing that i do but uh, it has become uh, no doubt a lifelong now passion of mine lovely and given that the context of our podcast is building new realities be interesting to understand with your experience of uk government policy whether that context or that sort of framework of building a new reality is considered because obviously government policy is happening at scale. It's happening with a lot of resource. Does it happen uh, in a kind of reactionary way or does it, is, is the end result often plotted out? It seems that uh, as in most organizations and many lives, everything is incremental change um, and that potentially you know, after this COVID crisis, we might go very much back to the way things were, or there could be a way to really reimagine um, what people's lives look like. I mean, I think with yesterday's announcements from Twitter that actually people 
no longer need to go to the office at Twitter. Everyone can work remotely. That's kind of quite a big change. There's been a lot of talk of those kind of changes. Um, so interested about the, the, the thinking within UK government policy, about whether they, there is this um, urge or desire to really rethink this or whether it's built along sort of party political alliances and maintaining budgets and sort of incremental change rather than really big visionary change and I you know I get obviously a, a lot of that will be guided by who's coming to power so when you've got someone like you know new labor coming in they also had a, a, a mandate to change things but I'm interested on your views of what uh, uh, the inside of the machine might look like yeah I mean I had a very interesting uh, 15 years while I was there because um, I was there through several changes of administration, particularly in the latter years where the administration was changing almost overnight, it sort of felt. Um, and so I was there you know, during the Labour administration, the coalition, the Conservative administration. And my reflection um, is that every government comes in with grand ambitions uh, to, for radical change. And um, I suppose in reality, what you know, what we experience from the outside of government is that change seems uh, sometimes quite painstakingly slow. Um, but that is because actually these are enormous um, organizations, you know, with so many people um, involved. And you know, when you when you're driving such a huge tanker, they don't turn on a dime, as you'd say in America. Um, and there are also just, you know, the realistic constraints of budgets. You know, um, if, if there was a, as they like to call it these days, a magical money tree, you know. Well, they, well, they found one, didn't they? They found a, a magical money, not just forest, it went from tree to forest to continent. I mean, when, they, when, there's, a, when there's a will or a need, it's like, oh. If money were no object and nobody minded about public deficits, you know, public <laughs> debt, um, then, you know, probably uh, what you would have is actually more of a pendulum swing of dramatic change, you know, between the different philosophical uh, leadership that come in with a change of administration. Yeah. What, what tempers that, what, you know, makes change a much more incremental process is uh, the availability of budget and the fact that budget is, you know, hotly contested against all, you know, by all policy um, priorities. And also um, that reality that I said that actually, you know, these are huge complex systems mm. and it is not easy to change those systems. So change just, you know, by, um, by default has to be more incremental. Um, so I think conditions are always very high and then they get dampened, you know, by the reality of what can be done. Um, but they're also very driven by um, personality, aren't they? You know, agendas and changes of thought and direction can be pushed through more uh, more quickly when you do have strong personalities and often when one thinks of of government from the outside one thinks of you know civil service people sort of putting ideas forward and then quite happy to retreat with them because they're like oh well i've done my bit i've put that idea forward and then it's been pushed back which is obviously different from the creative sector and the entrepreneurial sector where you've got people who are like no i'm gonna do this and just get on with it 
Yeah. Um, and obviously with, you know, some, of, some of the members of, sorry. sorry, go <laughs> my, ahead. My experience of the civil service um, is not that. I know that that's the stereotype, you know, that yeah. we think civil servants are sort of jobs worth uh, individuals, you know, probably highly educated, not very practical, you know. But in reality, the people that I had the, you know, pleasure to work with in the civil service were extraordinarily dedicated people, you know, who actually, you know, would have high flying careers if they went outside the civil service, but in the main were there because uh, because the challenges were so interesting and so big and because they had, it gave them the opportunity to really make a difference. Um, and so what I found was rather more that, um, if you think about it, any organization that has such rapidly changing leadership, you've got to be very adaptable to be able to work with, you know, different styles and different philosophies. And one thing that I found about politicians in general, um, in the main, they are there trying to be dedicated public servants and make a difference. Not all of them. Some of them, you know, are there because I suppose they, they like, the, you know, the attention-seeking headline-grabbing opportunities. <laughs> but in the main, they, you know, they do work hard and they want to make a difference. And civil servants, uh, the, I would just say sort of the good leaders, you know, in my experience, are the ones who quickly forge, you know, respectful and close working relationships with the civil servants. Um, and they, you know, it's, it's the role in a sense of the politicians to bring uh, that magical visionary fairy dust of, you know, let's do something completely different and try something, you know, that is out there and new and different and eye catching. And it's the role of the civil servants to, to ground them a little bit in the reality of how much that will cost. Um, you know, have they actually gone out and done their research to ask whether that's what the end users want, you know? Um, yeah. and, and bring that balance. And when that, when that is a good working relationship, you know, amazing transformation can be delivered. Um, yeah. Sometimes, you know, there is a challenge in that not being a, a very good working relationship. And then you see the headlines on the front pages about kind yeah. of dysfunctional cultures at certain departments under particular political leadership. Yeah. So yeah, you've, you've, you've touched on sort of new realities there. And I know two areas you're, you're very interested in is, um, uh, I don't know what the correct phrase for this, I'm gonna call it space garbage which isn't very uh, technical, uh, or, or just, you know, let's call it the cleanliness of space. And, yeah. and then also um, the establishment of, uh, you know, uh, habitations, um, such as, you know, using like, the Artemis project. Um, just wanted to, to find out a, a bit more about your, your view on those. I know the, the, the sort of keeping space clean is very practical. Uh, and um, well, when I say very practical, you know, <laughs> by its nature, it's pretty damn challenging, but actually is, is needed. Um, and, and in terms of the space habitations, do you think they, you know, in terms of the effort and the, the resource that's required, do you think they are kind of on this cusp of, you know, building a new reality in terms of feeding into um, the, the sort of psychology of we're exploring, we're out there, we're doing cutting edge stuff versus perhaps the actual benefit of what you find from growing tomatoes in, in zero G. Yeah. 
Um, I suppose, but I'll say that actually, I, I probably have, you know, three, you know, real um, passions in the space arena. Um, that question about future resource utilization and future habitation in space, um, that, that's for me, it is such a long way out in the future that that is almost more of an intellectual, you know, interest of mine. Um, but when you have people like the late great Stephen Hawking, you know, saying space exploration is vital to um, effectively the continuation of human beings as a species, um, and within the next 200 years, we can do a lot to change and preserve and protect the resilience of the resources of our home planet. But, you know, the trajectory is inevitable that actually, if we're going to continue to evolve and survive as a species, we, we're going to outgrow this planet. And that's why the science of exploration, understanding, um, you know, our place in the universe, understanding other celestial bodies and how they, you know, behave and what, you know, resources might be out there that could sustain life is, it's an interest, a very interesting topic to me. Um, now, the way, you know, the way different uh, governments are approaching that topic is a, is a highly contentious issue. I mean, just um, in April, April 6th, the US government issued a presidential decree um, very clearly setting out their view that um, the moon is, you know, up for grabs, that, um, you know, outer space is not a, a global commons, which you know, is actually a commonly accepted norm of behavior and um, perspective around the world. Um, you know, all the signatories of the UN, you know, peaceful uses of outer space convention have always treated outer space as being for, you know, the greater good of humanity, you know, and to be shared by all. Um, but actually, you know, the current US administration has A, declared it a war fighting domain and B, oh, recently issued this presidential decree saying, you know, that uh, treating it as a global commons, um, disincentivizes um, commercial companies from putting their resources into exploration mm. and therefore you know their goal is to work uh, through bilateral agreements and international um, you know MOUs etc in order to set out the ground rules for um, commercial exploitation of the moon and um, other other space resources so that is a big big area of space law and a big area of space science and space technology um, that's of interest to me but I'm, I'm not very closely involved in it i think the increasing exploitation of space um, has a consequence that i am very involved in and very interested in which is as you call you know the space garbage you know problem <laughs> Um, but it is a wider issue than that. It, when, yeah. you know, it's easy to use the word sustainability, but there are both man-made and natural hazards out in space um, that make the use of space, um, space travel and space exploitation and space study, I should say, make those things um, highly risky and very challenging endeavors which is why historically they've cost a lot of money to do as well. Um, so, you know, what you have is quite a large um, field of space debris mm. out in space uh, left by, you know, um, the early space programs where people didn't really think about the fact that if you 
you know, built a rocket that was effectively, you know, three stages. Waste, yeah. yeah. You know, each explosion leaving a lot, a lot of very small and several very large pieces of junk out there. Um, and they're all traveling at a huge velocity. Mm. Um, what you have created is basically a firing range, you know, where under the laws of Newton, those things carry on moving until they hit something, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I think uh, th this is now a growing area, but catching up rather slowly to um, all these new emerging business models in space, you know, hopefully people will be aware uh, because of Elon Musk's and his, you know, great PR efforts, you know, that increasingly uh, people are launching more and more and more satellites. I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, as of the end of last year, I think there were about 9,000 objects had ever in the history of space been launched. Um, and only, you know, about two uh, to 3,000 of those were, were operational still. Um, and the rest had been pushed out into deep space uh, into what they call a graveyard or orbit where they you know, hopefully wouldn't bump into anything because they're so far away or deorbited into the Earth's atmosphere where they can burn up and safely you know, be disposed of without hitting anything else. Um, but now companies like SpaceX with their Starlink uh, Constellation Network are looking at launching and have started launching thousands, thousands and thousands thousands you know i from recollection i know they've they filed um a, a license application for twelve thousand initially i think they have um roughly doubled that you know right. uh, recently um and they are not alone there are several other constellation network operators who are rapidly launching hundreds and hundreds of new satellites um this is great because satellites are great they generate you know many dozens of terabits of useful data um, every day, they create new capabilities for broadband connectivity, ubiquitous, you know, connectivity around the world for data services. They can do all sorts of, you know, fantastic things. They can power all sorts of fantastic services, you know, to protect us and to achieve UN sustainable development goals. And all of those things are great, but it's just making space very congested. Mm. And unlike uh you know roads the oceans of the earth the airspace around our planet there is currently no real space traffic management system there is a little bit of tracking and monitoring of space debris there are no solutions yet although there are some programs trying to find solutions to clean up the existing space junk that's been left behind either by accident or by design uh, by previous space launches, but there isn't any space traffic control system uh, where all of the launching uh, states agree to abide by the same set of rules. Um, there are conventions, and as I said, you know, most people try to be safe because their spacecraft costs a lot of money. They don't want to bump into anything else, and they don't want anything else to bump into them. But the more uh, these new space businesses get off the ground, the more satellites are launched, the more space travel becomes a service available to anybody with the money to buy a seat. You know, the more these new businesses, um, these big entrepreneurial endeavors take off and it's growing very, very fast, the more this problem of how do we keep 
the space operating environment safe, sustainable, and shared um, becomes a really pressing issue. And that's why I didn't found the Global Network on Sustainability in Space. I do, I chair that right. network. Um, that is a network um, of, that's driving collaboration between industry and um, academia and you know, a number of researchers um, around the UK who are reaching out globally to try and accelerate useful developments that will help us solve that space traffic management problem. Yeah, it's a very legitimate problem, isn't it? Because if you look at how aviation started, I saw some amazing um, clips or references last week where they, it was, it was, they had the, um, the Kitty Hawk, the Wright Brothers aircraft, and then the, the uh, evolution to the SR-71 Blackbird plane, you know, the fastest plane that's ever been that was at 2,700 miles an hour, was mm. 65 years. From Kitty Hawk to SR-71, 65 years, which is just a, a, an insane uh, amount of uh, progress, development, know-how in, in a tiny uh, amount of time and you can imagine obviously when they were building Kitty Hawk you know they didn't have many air traffic control systems they didn't have routing you didn't file routes you didn't look at traffic um, to where we were let's say some months ago obviously air traffic is is not quite so busy at the moment although the infrastructure is in place there so you can see how over you know decades um, you know probably at most how this structure will be required for at least understanding what's out there you know obviously when they set off in that field on kitty hawk they weren't worrying about any other uh, uh, aircraft in the area and it goes back to that and the point you made about when aircraft first um space aircraft space travel first going to space and they just like disregard it's like well what we'll do is we'll just jettison that off and we won't need that you know very much like the you know first travellers or first adventurers, you know, we'll just ditch that in the sea. Whereas yeah. now, of course, you'd be thinking like, oh, well, we need to recycle that. We need to reuse that. So it's just uh, awareness around usage and volume of usage. I think I read somewhere a statistic that, that the um, year on year on year air travel, um, the growth in air travel volume uh, was projected to be no more than 5%. And... And actually every year it outgrew that and it continued to grow up until a few months ago. Um, if you think about the incredible exponential trajectory of the growth of space traffic, um, you know, the first successful object to be placed into or orbit in 1957, the Sputnik satellite, 1957, to today, where satellites are being launched in batches of hundreds, you know? mm. <laughs> um, and you know, launches are taking place at a frequency um, at least monthly, you know, but with a number of uh, new space operators like um, Rocket Labs in New Zealand, you know, who are aiming for weekly launches, and here in the UK as well, aiming, you know, for weekly launches from a spaceport or maybe even more than one spaceport in the UK in the not that distant future. So this is becoming, you know, a quite critical issue. And those enabling regulatory frameworks and enabling technical solutions um, and enabling cross-border international agreements, they always lag behind, you know, the, the business opportunity and the capability yes. of the technology. Yeah. Um, but the problem for space 
people, you know, it is vast. Of course it's vast, 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 vast. But what people are ignorant of is the absolute reliance that we have for our everyday lives in every other sector, in every other part of our lives today. You know, you and I are speaking over a link that wouldn't really exist without communication satellites. We, uh, every day, you know, rely on the accuracy of the time signals that are pinged from the um, positioning, navigation, and timing. That's what they're called. ENT satellites, the GPS system that we all use on our satnav every day is the same system that's used to coordinate all of the computer systems uh, that need to be synchronized around the world, whether that's running stock markets or um, keeping the security systems on the nuclear um, you know, facilities <laughs> all synchronized and working properly. So if those satellites were taken out of commission, it wouldn't only create a huge cost to the economy, but you know, I have seen modeling that says, you know, if we had a five-day outage of the satellite, you know, um, infrastructure that's, that we're so dependent on, um, within about five days, you would be experiencing food shortages because logistical supply systems would not be able to operate. We are all so utterly reliant on um, home delivery at the moment and the emergency services, you know, and can you, can you see how could they possibly function without GPS? So there is a, there's a thing, you know, called a Carrington event. It's a hypothetical situation where a um, crash in space happens that is bad enough to create a debris cloud that is big enough that it takes a lot of satellites out of commission. Mm. And it's, you know, there's a reasonably high probability that that might happen. It's, you know, it's the risk that everybody is hoping won't happen, tries to design out of their mission, etc. But a Carrington event could also be caused by a big, um, a big, big, big sun, uh, sun nuclear flare. event, a big sun flare, a big bit of space wind, you know, knocking something off course. Yeah. And so... You know, these, the, it's the natural hazards and the man-made hazards are things that we are studying, that we monitor, that we track, uh, and we try and, you know, stay alert to, but they're increasing. And what we don't have yet is a, a global code that people adhere to that makes sure that we are able to manage those risks. And we don't have any mitigation solutions for what happens in that instance you know how do we clean up the mess and um, i guess and i guess what what we're going through right now is you know nature's given us a little bit of a yellow card isn't it it's given us humans like a little turn on the naughty step it's like you think you guys have, uh, have got it under control that you 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 know what's happening you know what you're doing and you just move forward with your systems but you know a, a nature event like uh, covid which really is kind of quite a light warning uh, when you look at it in the context of sort of e big ecosystem change has yeah. completely thrown us into disarray and, and all our best laid plans. Um, well, it, was a, it was a meteor impact that put paid to the age of the dinosaurs. Right. One, one nature event. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Which gives, puts our scale in perspective, doesn't it? It was one event. And that's, you know, thank God we have scientists all around the world working on how, you know, solutions to how can you predict 
you know, whether that particular event is likely to happen to the planet again? And if so, can we deflect the meteor? Well, that's the second part of that. It's all good working it out, like there's a meteor coming towards you, but what, what's the response to it? Does anyone actually ever discuss that in space circles? I'm sure there's lots of people spending time on plotting whether we're going to have near yes, misses. Yes, and there, you know, there are a lot of missions. One recently, um, you know, that did, which was, you know, about nudging asteroids, you know, and finding a solution, again, without creating more harm, you know, than the problem you're trying to solve. How do you get uh, a object that could otherwise cause enormous damage that is, you know, hurtling towards us at a great velocity? Yeah. How might you be able to move that out of the way? And again, you know, luckily, space is a large vacuum, so it doesn't take a big nudge. You just need to, you know, be quite careful about where... Should a little bit, little, like elbow at the bar. Yeah. Just kind of get it out of the way. So there's, there's quite a lot of work on that, which is great. Um, and all of that is around kind of sustainability. And I, I come back to, you know, why that's so important. And, and it is true that in the distant, distant, distant future for my children's 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 children 200 years from now, we probably need to be inhabiting a much larger proportion of the solar system than we do today if we're going to continue, you know, to survive as a species. But in the, in the immediate future, in today's life, you know, at what we have is this incredible reliance on satellites mm. and the amazing potential that satellite data has to help us solve problems here on Earth, which is a hugely undertapped resource. You know, it's underutilized. It's, a, it's not well understood. And it's something that I, you know do put a lot of my time into you ask kind of you know why do i get involved um you know in helping technology startups and particularly startups that are doing things with data it's because i actually feel that that community that startup community who understand how to develop useful and um valuable digital um data driven you know services that's the community that the people who know what satellite data is capable of what's out there and how to tap into that rich resource that's the those are the two communities that i work to try and bring together because i think there's huge potential for new services that can solve quite a lot of problems here on earth um, problems of food shortages problems of you know managing uh, weather events and risk from flooding or drought you know problems even just things like, you know, how, how do we get better at monitoring and understanding the climate um, impacts of the, the choices that we make, you know. You might have seen, actually, um, the amazing change in the satellite imagery of the pollution hotspots of the world. After I've seen, the I've, uh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen the odd one in the, in the press, yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's remarkable how the vantage point that space gives us to be able to analyze the impact of our actions on the environment and how, you know, how quickly we can see what one change or another, you know, what that impact has on our, on our environment. Um, it's a really powerful, powerful tool. So anyway, well, you know, I, I think people should be doing more with it. Doing more with data. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was interesting you mentioned the vantage point from space back on Earth because that was one of the big things that came out the initial space missions, wasn't it? This a bit this 
view of the earth as one entity. And obviously when you're on the ground and you're in traffic and you're downtown, it's all busy and hectic and sweaty. Um, It can feel uh, quite intimidating or quite a hostile. You want people to get out of your way. But there was this view in this, you know, from the late 60s uh, space missions or perhaps earlier of the earth. And it was a very unifying shot. Um, I think if anything, we could perhaps do with people reflecting a little bit more on some of these shots uh, back on our home, back on earth of, uh, of, you know, of understanding that we're all in this together. So a a couple of points you made, like the, uh, some of the space treaties on deciding whether space was uh, for uh, peaceful, creative commons or whether it was a war fighting zone. I mean, that's, terrifying to think that they're thinking of it in that space but of course it's rational some of it may just be posturing and gesturing uh for other deals back on uh, back on on earth um and the other piece uh, i thought was interesting is what do you think of space tourism you know is this view of the earth is it just for the super wealthy you know should we should i mean people can have access to, the, to this view and obviously future visuals background is, is vr and ar and by putting people in vr we can even create the feeling that they are in perhaps the Virgin Galactic or some kind of space rocket viewing back on the earth. And I think it's a very peaceful, uh, lovely meditative view. What's your take on space tourism, space tourism within the context of a sort of luxury consumerist brand? I'm sure there's upshots in that it's generating more work for the space industry and, and um, you know, progress is being made. Uh, yeah. And then there's the other, the other side where it's a bit of a, you know, the latest, uh, latest luxury uh, acquisition. Um, So first I'll address this this space force point because actually I don't want to imply um, that I think that it's wrong for countries around the world to to say, well, you know, space is a war fighting domain because actually um, as with any other defense and security issue, um, what maintains, I think, peace and security around the world is, is that kind of level playing field. It's the recognition that, you know, we are dependent on those, um, if you're talking from a military perspective, they call it the space assets. You know, we are quite dependent and resilient in our everyday lives um, on satellites. And if, you know, somebody else is developing a program just to, you know, that gives them anti-satellite capabilities, and we know that other countries are doing that, um, not least because China has done a demonstration of their ability to blow up one of their own satellites, which caused a huge debris cloud. So I, you know, I don't think it's wrong that uh, countries have a security, cybersecurity as well as part of that issue, you know, a security and defense perspective on space and develop their strategic, you know, position in that and develop their capabilities. I think it's important that we do and don't just accidentally leave that as a Wild West free-for-all. I mean, even back in the frontier day, you needed a few, you know, marshals and sheriffs to show up and, and impose a little bit of order and peaceful coexistence. And I think that's important. Space tourism is a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting development because that, Actually, I don't believe um, from having spoken with the founders of those space tourism companies um, about their business models, they're actually, you know, the Jeff Bezos and the, and the uh, you know, Virgin Galactics of this world, 
they are not developing the space tourism offer as you know as a huge money spinner they are in a way of course because they're entrepreneurs but they're driven by a much deeper sort of um, issue, which is the issue that you raise, which is about giving more people the opportunity to look back on our unique and fragile little planet mm -hmm. and, you know, see it in a much more holistic way with a different perspective. And every astronaut, you know, who's ever had that advantage and actually, you know, in the history of space exploration, there have been fewer than 600 people. I can't remember what the latest figure is. It's probably about 525 people who have had that view, who've been able to go up into space and look back on our planet. Um, and they, all of them, all of them say that it has had a profound effect on how they view the earth. Mm. And, and the people on it. And the people on it and how, you know, uh, how we should see ourselves as one big global community, uh, custodians of quite a special, unique and fragile, you know, resource. And I, so, uh, so Richard Branson will say that he's actually creating a space tourism business um, because he wants more people to have that perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I don't, I think that is part of why he's doing it. Yeah, you know? I'm sure. Of course yeah. And you yeah, know, if you, you make money like doing it, then you know, he's an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, if you, could, if you, if you can <laughs> proper, if you can propagate um, that sense of understanding, perhaps by people who can afford to take that view, those people are then going to have an impact through the businesses and operations that they run. But I think, as with any um, new form of travel you know, the days of the cruise liner, the days of the, um, you know, the, the, the railroad uh, sleeper, you know, services, the, the Pullman, you know, cabins, the days of um, air travel, they all began as, you know, pastimes for the wealthy. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that is the way, because these are expensive new technologies, you know, that's the way mm. these industries develop. Um, my personal view is that space travel is not going to just be, you know, going up and coming back, which in and of itself is a very big innovation, a huge leap um, for space. It's not only about that, it's also going to pretty rapidly turn into how you get from A to B. Um, because there were, you know, if you think about it, there are new developments going forward, there are companies, um, uh, like Skyrora, who are developing much more ecologically friendly, you know, rocket um, solutions. And what will happen, I believe, is that you will be asking yourself the question, you know, do you do take a 16 hour flight, you know, to... Or do you go up and have the, uh, the two hour? Back. And it'll take a while, you know, for um, space travel to be as green you know, yeah. but you may, you, I just think you will find that it's going to, you know, maybe not within my lifetime or my children's lifetime, it will become a normal mode of travel. Um, and Possibly, if, if, we don't, if we don't beat you to it with uh, spatial immersive computing and therefore the ability where you don't have to fly, you actually feel you're in the room say, together. What you do though, you know, what would be great is, I think there are two areas of, you know, the, the stuff that Future Visual does that I think, you know, it's, these are vital technologies 
for getting value from the work that's already going on in the space sector. One is that potential through VR to um, broaden that space exploration perspective and understanding to a much, much wider audience. Because actually, you know, they, they do hide their light under a bushel. And particularly for young people, you know, to have a much more immersive experience of space, you know, could, can really trigger an interest and an enthusiasm and appetite for studying those sorts of subjects, the STEM subjects, and for pursuing STEM careers. So I think there's a huge potential, you know, opportunity in that. Um, and people have done a bit with it, but, you know, there's so much more that could be there's done. There's so much more to be done. Yeah, I agree. The, um, the other area is about data analytics and data visualization and augmented reality as a tool for um, better uh, understanding of uh, physics, for better understanding of, um, you know, if you look at the sort of space traffic control question, you know, really being able to use that as a tool in analyzing the data that's available um, and generating, you know, useful insights that a human being can understand. I think artificial intelligence, machine learning, and augmented reality, you know, all of that being able to take data and turn it into a useful um, interaction, something that a human being can then take action because they've understood it. Um, I think those are really critical technologies to help with the growth of space technology, with the mm. improvement of the way we do space. Well, we've actually just been formally made a part of the Weaver Consortium, which I think I mentioned to you probably a couple of weeks, months ago, and, and by email. And that's interesting because it puts us in a consortium where you've got specialists dealing with the data, the machine learning. You've got specialists dealing with the audience engagement. And so it allows us to fit in uh, and just do our bit, which is kind of connecting all those pieces together. Uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to talk more. I'm just aware of the time. It's 12 o'clock. I know you've got another appointment. Uh, I, I'd love to talk further about some more of the Carrington event type theories and perhaps find out um, some of your favourite books, but we can leave that for another time. Um, Catherine, thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, making time to come on our Building New Realities podcast and uh, finding out a bit more about your view on space. Sure, it's a pleasure. <laughs>